In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good. But it didn't stay good. Adam and Eve traded perfect fellowship with God in exchange for a false promise, and in doing so, they tore down the good garden. Humanity continued to trade good for bad, brother for blood, birthright for a bowl of stew, and yet, as humanity descended, God was still working. In the ashes of a torn down garden, in a broken family, the Lord was planting the seeds of redemption. I know it's not spring yet, but man, is today not going to be a beautiful day, right? Uh, so anxious to get out there. I promise I'll only go two hours, so we're good. We're good. All right, so I'm going to have you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Uh, we're going to continue our series uh, in the book of Genesis, which we began in September. Think of all that's happened since September uh, when we began this series. And, and uh, we've had a, the holidays in there. We've had some actual snow this year. And now we're looking at the daffodils starting to pop through the ground. And we anticipate spring. And, uh, and I love the change of seasons. And I believe that kind of reflects very well the sermon today as we move uh, from a broken situation into something uh, better and, and a part of God's plan. And so my name is Tony. I welcome you here if you're new here. And so this is a joy to open the word of God with you today. So I hope you were able to uh, receive one of the scriptures that we were handing out as we go through this. So with that being said, I'm curious if in the room right now we have anybody or a few that are an elementary teacher. Is there an elementary teacher in the room? Okay, we have uh, at least a few up right here. Was there any up there? Uh, yeah, all right, there we go. Own it, that's all right. So now, now this is a real test. If you're teaching in the elementary level and you have a child that finishes fourth grade under your tutelage as a teacher, would you feel confident they are now ready to start a multi-billion dollar organization? I don't hear any confidence in your teaching. That I, and nor would I expect uh, that there would be confidence. I mean, fourth grade education is good. I mean, it's part, but it's just starting, right? There's a lot more to learn. So imagine if I was to tell you a true story of somebody where fourth grade education is the extent of what they received, and then to say that they actually became a success story. But that would require then somehow, if fourth grade education's all they had, that somewhere along the line with that limitation and, that, and the adversity that comes with that limitation, that they would have to learn how to rise out of that. Well, what if I told you the person I'm speaking of also, again, fourth grade education, that's a pretty limited start, but they also worked to start their own company, only to see it fail. Started another company, only to see it fail. Started a third company that finally makes it, but then they sell that company because they have a dream that is beyond that. And then they use the money for that. I happen to be talking about Milton S. Hershey. You know, he began his, his life with, a, with a, a lot of limitations. Not a very well-off person, only made it to, through the fourth grade, 
worked to get a business started, kind of was a dreamer type, but yet a very strongly resolved young man, started a company only to see it fail, started another one only to see it fail, started a third company in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, that was making caramel. So caramel is a very tasty delicate uh, delicacy that we might all like. Now I'm giving up uh, candy and sweets and desserts for Lent. So just bringing up caramel right now is a little bit like, ah, I'd love to have some. But having said that, he started that company with a recipe he came up with, it became successful. He sells it to somebody else and then he starts from the proceeds of that the chocolate company we now know as Hershey Chocolate Company. So in this, we think through, you know, it's like we know the success of Milton S. Hershey. We respect him because he's used uh, his resources to start uh, the Hershey uh, School that is named after him. And, and so there's a lot that we celebrate about his life, but very often we don't, we, we talk about the points of success and we fail to talk about his limitations and his failures that helped shape him into being a person that could come up with such a plan as big as the Hershey Chocolate Company and ultimately creating an entire town around that. Now, we can celebrate his success, but we need to also look at that which molded him towards his future. And I would bet you if he was here right now, he would say he probably learned more from his failures than he did from his single success. But how does a person create such a story in their life like that? Clearly, they didn't let, he didn't let the failure define him or keep him down. He, in fact, he, he, you can kind of get the sense he was a strongly resolved kind of person, so he made that success through hard work and determination. Now, if I was to look around this room, now, I would, be, I would guess there's not a billionaire in this room. But there are plenty of people that would say, you know, I've reasonably achieved a lot of what I was hoping to achieve in my life. Or I feel like, yeah, I'm in a fairly good place. But if I was to ask you, like, what were the failures in your life and what did you learn from them? My guess is that for those of you that are experiencing some level of success in your life, would say that you learned a lot from your failures and the things that you would say were mistakes. You built upon them versus let them ruin you or define you. Today, we're gonna look at Judah, the, the, the fourth son of Jacob or the fourth son of Israel as we now know him. And so Judah, though, is a much similar story. His name is the most significant and continued use of the 12 tribes of any other brother. The name Judah means more to us today than probably even you realize. It's from his name that we get the term Jew, and therefore Jewishness, or of Jewish faith. It all comes under his name, Judah. And, and, we're, and we know that he ends up becoming this one person we ascribe uh, significant things like songs where we talk about from the line of Judah, or we'll sing songs that will say the lion of Judah. Judah's name means something to us today. But Judah's story is actually filled with failure and significant errors that, that reaped consequences throughout his entire life, even after he began to walk well. 
The consequences remain, but he was able to continue to walk well. So we're gonna study Judah's life today, and you'll see in the bulletin that I titled this sermon, The Making of a Leader. And often when we think about the making of a leader, you'll say, oh, there's all these principles that they discern from a young age. And I would say that is true, but they discern those principles often out of trial and error. And so you're gonna see in Judah's life that there were things that were happening in his earlier years that formed him into the person that God chose to be the one through whom Jesus would actually come. And so here we go. So let's begin, and we'll look at the kind of where Judah comes into focus for the first time in Scripture. It's in verse 12 of chapter 37 of Genesis. It says this, Now his brothers, referring to Joseph, now Joseph's brothers had gone to graze uh, their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring back word to me, bring word back to me. Then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in a distance before he reached them. They plotted to kill him. Now let me pause just in case you were not here last week and you're not maybe familiar with the story. Joseph was the 11th of the 12 sons. Okay, and Joseph was a dreamer, and he had a dream where he was seeing 12 sheaves and this, this gathering of harvest, and these sheaves were all in a circle, and then his sheaf came into the center, and the other 11 bowed to his sheaf. And so clearly what is being said in that dream is there will be a day when the brothers of Joseph, again, he's the 11th. Uh, on the list, uh, they will eventually someday bow to him. And after he had this dream and he woke up the next morning, what did Joseph do with the dream? He went out to the fields and he shared with delight his dream with his brothers. Did not go over very well. They were very jealous of him already. They were not very fond of him because they knew their father liked him more than any of the rest of them. And they had also known that Joseph told on them that their behaviors were not what they should be. And so he was that little punk brother that nobody liked, all right? So, but time has gone on. After these dreams, because he had another dream where he said that they would bow to him, including his mother and father, so time has gone on, and what's happened in the hearts of his brothers is that they've grown in bitterness, anger, resentment, and jealousy. So that's what you're reading here when they see Joseph coming. They decide they want to kill him, which is an extreme thought and an extreme plan. But that's how far their jealousy, bitterness, and anger had grown. So let's continue on in verse 19. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal has devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. 
When Reuben, who by the way is the oldest, heard of this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So Reuben had a plan and this was just buying him time. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty and there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites, which would be an enemy of them, but they were nonetheless uh, just coming through. So these Ishmaelites were from Gilead, and their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. And they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. Let me pause again right there. This is the first time that Judah speaks up. So we're now seeing Judah come into the, into the, the light here in scripture for the first time. And it is basically to kind of have a slight change of mind because he was part of the brothers that was ready to kill Joseph. But given time, you know, as they're sitting around the fire, he's starting to feel guilty about this. We're about to kill our brother. He is our flesh and blood. So instead of doing what Reuben was gonna do, which would have been the right thing to the fullest, he kinda takes a partial step in the right direction. Let's not kill him, let's just sell him. So they sell him. So let's continue on uh, with, with in verse 28. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. What can I turn, where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine to see if it, whether or not it's your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters uh, uh, refused to be, uh, I'm sorry, all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Okay, so this is the story of Joseph coming into the, into the light. And, and so this fourth of, of 12 sons speaks up, not going all the way towards the good, but coming part of the way, and has his brothers sold, and appeals to his fellow brothers as to pacify him to say, okay, we're all angry, we're all ready to kill him, but he is our flesh and blood. 
So we shouldn't at least, should at least consider other options. And then that's when they sell them into slavery. So we can see that these brothers were so filled with anger and jealousy that it was harming their ability to think straight. In fact, what I would suggest is that with failure, there are some things that we need to learn from failure that can often happen. And that is this. We too often make decisions with relationships based on our anger and our jealousy. And as a result, they, if anger and jealousy defines any relationship, it will lead to poor decision-making. I can tell you that whenever I've made decisions on how I'm going to operate in regards to another person, and I am feeling anger or jealousy or some kind of rage, that is not the time to trust my own discernment. That is not the time to think that I've got, I'm gonna choose the best path. In fact, I need to be skeptical of myself and my ability to make a decision in that moment. So failure often happens, though, when we let anger and jealousy guide us on how we deal with relationships. Another thing in failure that we, we need to learn from is that choosing to pacify people versus taking a courageous stand is a path towards continuing failure. So when we pacify people, and again, Joseph, I mean, Jacob was, or Judah, I'll get it right here in a moment. Judah had in this moment a sense of clarity. He knew we really shouldn't be doing this. But instead of going the full way of doing the right thing, he pacified and cut to the middle, which then continued the failure of the brothers. Because now they've sold him, he's gone, but they have to deal with their father. So that leads to the next failure. And this is where they use deception. They put blood on this coat that they knew uh, identified Joseph. And so they were gonna take it back to Jacob or Israel and, and be able to say like, this is what we found. And then they let Jacob declare the story. And then they're like, yeah, that that's must be what happened. But here's the problem. Deception might have won the day, okay? But they, you start to see as we go through the next several chapters that the awareness of the truth was starting to haunt them. So deception may win the day in regards to failures, but it will begin to create shame and guilt at levels that will cause you to not feel free, but rather in bondage. See, these brothers now have to live with the story, knowing what they had done to their brother, but also knowing that their father saw it differently and, and knew the story differently. And then let's reread what, he, what happens to their father. So when their father hears about what's happened to Joseph, verse 34, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son for many days. And then it says, all his sons which would be all the ones that sold Joseph into slavery and knew the truth, all his sons came around him to comfort him. But he refused, Jacob refused to be comforted. And he said, no, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. And then his father wept for him. Now imagine, if you can in your mind's eye for a moment, their father's in a chair or perhaps on the ground just sobbing. 
And they're all trying to comfort their father. And they're all gathered around him. And then, and then their father lashes out and says, I am not gonna be comforted. I am gonna continue to mourn until I see my son after I die. They're all trying to comfort him, knowing the truth. And you can imagine they're looking at each other in the eyes, being haunted by what's just happened to their father and knowing they're the cause. You see, deception won the day. He bought the story, but now they've got to live with a father whose heart is broken, and they're the cause. Time goes on. Much time goes on. In fact, you're gonna, if you were to read in Genesis chapter 38, which we're not gonna, gonna look at because we're gonna stay with the, with the brother's story and how jo, Judah rises out of that. But in chapter 38, Judah makes another colossal heir. He loses two, two sons to death. And he is grieving over that. And he has a third son uh, that is still alive. And, and the bride of the first two sons like keeps getting passed down. And then he refuses to give her to the third son. And then, and then you get this whole convoluted story. And it's a crazy story. But eventually, under deception, Judah ends up sleeping with his daughter-in-law. And then she becomes pregnant with twins. Judah discovers what has happened and he is filled with shame and you'll see an immediate regret and confession that he had sinned and that he was not to touch her ever again. Strange part of that story is Tamar, this daughter-in-law, gives birth to two sons, one of which his name is Perez, who becomes part of the line of Jesus. It's part of God's grace and amazing mercy but in Judah's life, he continues to make significant mistakes. But when he gets caught, because often you get caught, even though deception can win for a while, eventually truth comes out. And you see that in chapter 38 with Tamar. Eventually truth came out. And when the truth came out, you continue to see that Judah responds in full confession and repentance. And Judah keeps growing stronger and stronger as a result. So let's look at how Judah, from this man of failure and making significant mistakes, but yet showing signs that he's a leader, how does he rise out of this constant narrative of failure? Well, in chapter 43, we we're gonna skip forward in some time here. So we now, from last week, we talked about the dreams of Joseph. And there were two dreams for him. There were two dreams uh, by servants of Pharaoh and then two dreams of Pharaoh. And the two dreams of Pharaoh spoke to seven years of good, bountiful harvest and seven years of severe famine. So now we're in those seven years of famine and Joseph, the 11th son, is now the highest ranking person in all of Egypt with the exception of Pharaoh. So Joseph is trying to, is, is being commissioned by the Lord under the leadership of Pharaoh to be able to spare the family, those who are back in the, the promised land. But at this point, they have just returned from there the first time, and now they are needing to go back a second time. But let me tell you how the first time went. When the brothers showed up, again, Joseph hasn't seen them for years. But now the brothers show up, 
Because they're hungry, their people, their families are starving. Jacob had sent them to go and get grain in Egypt because they heard that Egypt was handing out grain. They just didn't know it was Joseph leading that whole process. So Jacob sends all the brothers with the exception of Benjamin, who is the 12th son. Now, Benjamin's significant because he is the full brother of Joseph, and the only full brother of Joseph. And so when Joseph sees all the brothers, immediately he's like, well, wait, my brother's not here. So in order to avoid revealing that he's Joseph, he ends up asking them questions, you know, where is, is your father alive? Uh, do you have any other brothers? And, and they start telling them what's going on. But then when Joseph sends them back to the promised land, okay, back to Israel, the land of Israel, that he keeps Simeon behind because he had secretly put cups of his, belongings of his, into the bags of all his brothers. And when they saw this, you know, he ended up holding them an account and says, okay, I want to keep Simeon here, and then the rest of you go back, and don't you return until you bring Benjamin. Okay, so Simeon's now stuck back in Egypt and has been there for quite a long time. And in fact, uh, probably a couple years. So the famine has gone on a long time and now things have gotten so dire that it, they need to go back. The brothers need to go back to Egypt to get more grain and food. But they have a problem. They can't return unless they take Benjamin. So that's where we pick it up in chapter 43. And we see again that Judah has to step forward. Verse one. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, the man warned us solemnly that we will not see his face again unless your brother is with you. So if you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, why did you bring this trouble on me by telling that man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living, he asked. Do you have another brother? And we simply answered his questions. How are we to know, he would say, bring your brother down here, down here. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with, with me and we will go at once so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself, again Judah declaring this, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him and if I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Okay, let me stop there. So Judah has now become this spokesperson for all the brothers. Again, remind you, he, it was his voice that they responded to to not kill him, but to sell him into slavery. But Judah was only being partially good there. He didn't go all the way. 
But now, in this situation, they've all lived under this lie. They continue to deceive Jacob that Joseph had been killed by an animal. Now they're in the midst of an incredible, incredible uh, amount of famine that they are feeling like it's sure that they will die. They've already gone once, grabbed some food, brought it back, but left a brother behind, and they did not go back because they knew their father would never let Benjamin go back because Benjamin was the comfort to the grief of Jacob. You see, Benjamin was the full brother of Joseph, so therefore he was the comfort. And to send the comfort on to Egypt was something they weren't willing to ask of their father. But the time has become desperate. And the one to have the desperate conversation was Judah. And Judah begins to speak with significant honesty. And so he then goes and begins with, in verse eight, when he says, I will take full blame unto myself. This is the first time you'll see Judah say, I'm gonna take ownership over the issue. I'm gonna take ownership over the problem. So when it comes to rising out of failure, when you see someone become an advocate by leveraging their own standing for the good of all, that's a person that's becoming a leader regardless of whatever their past is. And Judah, in spite of his past, becomes this advocate, leveraging himself for the sake of the good of other people. You now see his mindset has shifted. You also see in verse 10, when he talks about, if we had just been courageous enough to go back earlier, we could have been to Egypt and back twice. That's another thing of speaking, again, the, the literal situation. He was speaking the reality, saying to his brothers, if we'd been courageous enough, saying to your father, if you'd been willing, we would have been able to provide ourselves food two times over. Judah is now speaking uncomfortable truths. Again, failure is sometimes acknowledging we've made a mistake. We should have done this differently. Another thing about rising out of failure is to repent of sins and to versus justifying it. And, and again, there was a lot of justification, I'm sure, by those brothers in selling their brother and justifying the need to be able to lie to their father. I'm sure there was all kinds of justification. And I'm sure with you and I, when we have failures and, and when we failed in the business world or we failed on behalf of our family, I'm sure there's lots of ways we justify it to just kind of lower the sting of our mistakes before our family or our friends or our coworkers. But repentance, a person that's truly gonna rise out of failure is one that says, I can't, I can't keep doing this. I gotta go different and I can't keep justifying it. You see this in Judah's life after he gets caught with the Tamar situation when the truth comes to light and you'll see it again in chapter 44 uh, when, Joseph, when Judah brings back Benjamin with him and the rest of the brothers a second time. You'll see it happen there again. When verse 16, and let's just look at that real quick. So now they have come back a second time. They brought Benjamin with them, and then they're standing before Joseph. And so when they're standing before Joseph, Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? Because again, he had put things in their bags that belonged to him, and they got caught. 
So they got caught for doing something they actually did not do. Verse 16, Judah responds, what can we say to you, my Lord? What can we say? How can we even prove our innocence? Because there's no way to do it. It's happened twice. But what does he say? Instead of just bringing defense over something they did not do, he realizes, but we are guilty. God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now, my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. So what you see there in Judah is that not only has he been able to realize, even though we're being accused falsely in this moment, that doesn't make them innocent. And he doesn't throw his brothers under the bus in this moment. Judah is actually thinking very specifically in regards to himself, I am guilty. Because when he says, God has uncovered your servant's guilt, that is a singular statement referring to himself. And then he submits himself to the punishment that was likely to happen, to become slaves. So what you see here is that not only is he begin to think about the good of other people, not only is he speaking the truth when it was uncomfortable, and, now, and then he's repenting from his sins versus justifying it. Now he publicly confess, confesses and owns the failures so that he can turn the page and move forward with whatever happens. He's willing to accept, if the consequences are beyond what I can bear, it is what it is, I am guilty. I believe this moment is the moment where Judah has gone from death to life. He is now owned, he is guilty, and he has confessed it before his very brother to whom he was guilty towards, not even knowing that was Joseph. The story will be shared in more detail over the next two weeks but I wanna highlight something that concludes the story concerning Judah. And it's the blessing over him by Jacob. So can you turn in your Bibles to chapter 49? Jacob eventually goes to Egypt and he gets to be face to face with his son Joseph. And there was a, an emotional return and an embrace that was beautiful. And again, we'll talk more about that in a couple weeks. And it was an incredible return. But now that all the brothers are together and Jacob is able to speak to each of them and Jacob's life is coming towards its end, he wants to provide a blessing to each brother and a prophetic statement over each brother. He begins, obviously, from oldest to younger, but when he comes to Judah, he says something that seems unexpected. Because again, Judah's fourth, fourth son, right? He is not the oldest. Reuben doesn't get the blessing of firstborn because he had done something horrific in sleeping with, with, his, father, with his father's wife. And so Reuben is discounted from the blessing. And you'll see that the blessing of firstborn, where you get double portion, is actually given to Joseph, the 11th born. But Joseph doesn't get the rights of leadership. That's given to Judah. And so let's see what was actually said to Judah in the blessing from Jacob. It says this in verse eight. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You 
are a lion's cub, Judah. You're returned from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations will be his. Woo. That is a powerful blessing that has just been spoken over Judah, a man who had deceived his father, who had actually suggested the idea to sell him into slavery, is now being given the right to be the royal leader of the family. It begins by saying he is going to be over his brothers and his brothers are going to look to him. And then it says that Judah is going to be the lion's cub, therefore the predator, not the prey. He is going to be the leader of the family. But then in verse 10, in verse 10, it says that within the family, the scepter and the staff of authority, the scepter of royalty and leadership, and the staff of authority will be with Judah, will be with Judah until the one who comes to whom it belongs. Ultimately saying, Judah, you're going to be the steward of the royal line. Judah, you're going to be caretaker of the leadership of Israel until the one comes. Judah, from you will be the one to whom all this belongs. So Judah, who had been the failure of a leader earlier, even though you could see his leadership qualities, he kept making bad decisions, but then responding to his failures with repentance and confession and then continuing to speak truth. He rose out of this to then receive the blessing. Judah, to your care, God is going to give you the scepter. To your care, God is going to give you the staff of authority. And you will care for it until the one comes to whom that scepter and that staff belongs. And then he makes this incredible statement about the one he speaks of. Because he says, to the one whom he belongs shall come. And then this statement of explanation or clarity as to who that one is. To that one, the obedience of the nations shall be his. So to Judah, the scepter and the staff of authority will be his as a caretaker, as a steward among his brothers, as a leader of Israel. But that scepter and that staff actually is not yours. It actually belongs to one who comes later. And that one who comes later, his authority is beyond Israel. His authority is all the nations of the world. So the one comes. Till the one comes, that scepter, that staff belongs to the line of Judah. That's why we sing songs about the Lion of Judah. That's why we sing songs about the Lion of Judah. That's why when we go into Christmas every year that we talk about the Lion of Judah because it's through Judah that the one comes. In early parts of Jesus' ministry on this earth, he kept telling people, 
It's not time yet. When they wanted to, to parade around him or declare him before leaders, and he kept saying, it's not time yet. Don't tell anybody. Because there will come a time when he will receive that. But then there was this moment, this intimate moment at a well with a woman, and they're having this discussion at the well, and she's like, someday, someday, somebody will be able to explain this, but it's gonna be that one who'll be able to explain where we are to worship and then she asked very specifically to Jesus, who are you? And Jesus says, I am that one. I am he. I am he. So Jesus is the one to whom that scepter and that staff belong. And it's been cared for by Judah's family throughout the generations, and now it's his. And then you see that when Jesus dies on the cross and he resurrects from the grave, Jesus no longer tells people, shh, don't tell him, it's not time yet. No, Jesus takes the scepter and the staff upon his resurrection and declares himself to be the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And I want you to see that when he gave his final commission to the disciples, that he literally is speaking on the authority given by the blessing of Jacob over Judah all those years later. Look at this as it's on the screen together. And look at the underlying terms. So when you look at Genesis 49.10, it says the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. Now look at Matthew 28. Jesus speaking with his scepter and staff in his hands, because he now takes authority and says, now go and make disciples of all nations. Exactly what was said in Genesis. And then he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then teach them to Obey everything I have given, commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So what is Jesus doing? In this very moment, he takes his scepter, he takes his staff, and he tells his followers, now's the time to go all, to all the nations. Go to all the nations and tell them to follow after me. Follow after me. This is what Judah's line was caring for and tendering for all those generations till the one came to whom it belongs. So now I speak to us here in this room. Judah's story mirrors much of our stories. None of us are where we're at today based on just a pattern of successes. No, many of us today are surviving because we've gone through failure and we learned how to handle it. But in particular, our walk with Jesus has been built on learning from the mistakes of our sins and the failures of our sins and handing it over to the one who can redeem it. So I appeal to you, what does it mean for you to be made into something better where your life is more of a reflection of Christ more and more? What does it take? Well, it takes this, learning from failure and avoid repeating it. <laughs> this is coming under the grace of God. Let learning that from our failures, that God can forgive us for it, he can redeem us, and then help us not repeat it. Secondly, 
He can make us into that person that reflects Christ more and more when we begin to embrace the liberty that truth provides and reject a pattern of hiding our sins. As long as Judah was operating in secret or under some kind of shroud of darkness or deception, he was miserable and things weren't going well. But when we come into the light, we discover liberty. It's not easy to open the door, but when we come into the light, you start discovering the liberty that truth brings. Jesus says, those that come to me are gonna be in the light and there's no darkness in them. This is in 1 John 1. And then we are to confess our sins and be faithful. He'll be faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all that unrighteousness. That's his promise to us. And then thirdly, when we are given that incredible grace and mercy and forgiveness, and we've had that failure thrown in our face, and, and we realize that, that shame, that guilt it brings is not what's gonna define me. I'm gonna choose to hold on to the grace of Christ. Then what we need to do is from there forward, walk in obedience to the character and person of Christ. People, we were not meant to live under the consequences of our sins only. Now, consequences can continue, but they are not to define us. God wants to forgive you. He wants to change you and help you learn from it so you don't repeat it. And then he wants you to walk in the liberty that truth provides, not in deception. And when we look at the life of Christ, we have our model, our template by how to live. And he wants us to be obedient to him. Let's pray. So Jesus, I recognize that you provided a path, what light, living in the light looks like. I recognize the deception. We often use it to cover over how we're feeling today. We're not very honest when people say, how are you doing? We say we're good. Or when some mistake happens, we tend to soften it in the eyes of others just so that we don't look so bad. We mislead, but then we go forward and we feel shame and guilt. Deception works, but it doesn't provide life. It kills. And you wanna bring life to us, life anew, changing that which we've messed up into something beautiful. So God, would you do that kind of work today and maybe some of the hearts that maybe came into this room living under a lie or maybe just overwhelmed by the consequences of failures. Maybe, Lord, the story of Judah can be an encouragement and they'd be willing to crack the door open and let you restore and give new life. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we're gonna respond to what we just received with a song that, a song of gratitude for the God who takes our messes, the things that are broken, that are ruined, and he makes something beautiful out of them. I think many of us in this room have seen that happen in our lives and have can testify to the work of God in that. I, you know, I invite you to, to join us and, and sing and, and celebrate that. But if you're in the midst of it, sing in faith knowing that this God who took this mess, who took this mess of a man in Judah and, and, and brought something good and, and brought something beautiful and blessed. But he can do the same.
in your life as well. Sing in faith. Would you stand and join us? search the
So scripture talks about that the one to whom the scepter belongs will bring a people along to a greater resurrection. And so it is about going from death to life in, in regards to what God does in us. We die to who we used to be. We come alive to what he can bring us to. And so that's what Jesus is doing in us. And that resurrection we are going to celebrate here in a couple weeks. Uh, Easter is coming up, the Resurrection Sunday. And we have invitation cards that'll be out in the lobby that you can invite people to hear the story of the resurrection and what it can do in bringing life to the most difficult of lives that maybe have been damaged and harmed so significantly beyond repair so it may seem. But Jesus can make all things new. And so we'll be celebrating that here in a couple of weeks. Additionally, we do Monday, Thursday, where we have a time of preparing our hearts for that celebration. And that's become, quite frankly, one of my favorite parts of the year. Uh, Alex and I were talking about that night is so special in preparing the heart. And we would welcome families being here. There'll be a time of worship. There'll be time of, of just prayer, but also time of being able to take communion together. And also, if God puts it upon your heart to wash hands and feet of someone else. That's gonna be part of that evening. I would encourage you to come. It's just a one-hour service, but it's so good in preparing us for Resurrection Sunday. So let me speak of how the name of Judah concludes in Scripture. It's found in Revelation. His name continues to be used because of the caretaking role he had to then whom it belongs. So Revelation chapter 5 says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, riding on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. So John, I, began to weep and wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah. the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and set in the seven seals, and he's able to change your life from brokenness to something beautiful. We just sang from graves to gardens, and some of our lives might feel, quite frankly, like graves. But God wants to bring a new work, and that work doesn't have to wait until you die on this. He's meant for life to come now so that we can anticipate life later. We get to celebrate the one who is of the line of Judah, who is worthy to open the scrolls now. And then when we die, we get to see him face to face. It will no longer be by faith. It will be by presence. And we want that invitation to go to you. So may the Lord work in your heart that you will know the one who can redeem you, that you're not just a caretaker like Judah was, but you are actually become children of God. That is the story we proclaim. And if you would like to talk with someone and to further about this, we'll have people in the encounter room that'd be glad to pray with you, talk with you further. I will also be up front. But hear this. When we go out these doors, and if you're a child of the king, we have one who is worthy that we pray to. And he has given us a life of resurrection that is not a life of judgment or death. It takes us out of shame and brings us into the light. Amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>